National was really unique, fun, and creative place. They had the best giant crazy Christmas party every year. And where else could you find in the same venue Richard Nixon and MTV? It was a great place for people to learn the business. Really creative, really fun, fun, fun place to work. Yeah, we won hundreds and hundreds of awards. It was unbelievable. It's just tremendous. We just had a blast. It was so much fun to go to work every day. It was a family. You know, zeitgeist is a word that's used far too often these days. Guilty as charged. But National Video Center really was a zeitgeist. It was the zeitgeist for Promo Cowboys in the 80s and 90s. Welcome to Season 2 of the Promo Cowboys Podcast. Talking TV marketing and some other stuff with me, your host, Barry Fitzsimmons. Like other top post-production houses of the era in New York City, Places like Broadway Video, Editel, and Post Perfect, National Video Center served the top broadcast and cable networks from MTV and VH1, CBS and NBC, to ESPN and USA, and just about every cable network and local station in between. There was something about National that set the place apart. Imagine a sort of college campus student center where all the kids are super creative and super cool and dress like extras in a movie about what's happening right now. Now being circa 1992. If you were me, you showed up wide-eyed and a little intimidated, but you got a bag full of tapes and a script and a deadline to meet, and you're supposed to start your edit at 10 a.m. with a guy you've never met, and his name is Ron Harris. You're not even sure what room you're in. You had a room, a small room, and it was next to the rig. E, you were an E. No, it, it was edit F. Edit F! So I show up at edit F, and it's yeah. great that it's called edit F because <laughs> my last name starts with an F. But um, just put yourself put yourself back there. It's about right, 1992. Right. Barry right. Fitzsimmons walks into edit F for the first time. A young man. Young-ish. A young 22, 23-year-old, I think. I looked 22. National Video, in its heyday, was the the most prolific, uh, uh, textured, uh, varied, uh, online, full-service television production, post-production facility in New York. Where else could you find, in one day, in the same venue, Richard Nixon and MTV <laughs> together, side by side. It was unbelievable. We had such a diverse client base coming through there. This is longtime national editor Barry Gleiner. You really lear- got to learn the facets, the amazing facets of what a great television, from you know sports to music to news, drama, entertainment, you know, it was, a, it was an interesting time because at that time, there were so many large production and post-production companies in New York City. And they were very, it was a very high level of competition. And you knew everybody had your back there. We, we you almost gathered around uh, to support each other, to fight off business from leaving us to go to another post house. And I think by creating this environment, uh, this super friendly environment, an open environment. I think clients loved coming to National. It was just a great 
really creative, really fun, 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 fun place to work. This is Tina Potter, a client and partner at National during the heyday. I feel like I kind of grew up there. You know, I, I started there, I guess, when I worked at Fred Allen uh, back in the 80s. You know, Fred Seibert and Alan Goodman, the kind of godfathers of MTV. They were the first creative directors that launched MTV. And we, we vacillated between working at Broadway Video and working at National. For, so I spent my life for years at both of those places as an associate producer and then as a producer. And all the MTV networks were sort of based out of those two places. And that's sort of where we did all our work. We launched Nickelodeon. We launched VH1. I'll never forget that. Working with some of the most amazing people and meeting some of the most amazing people and going to some of the best Christmas parties. <laughs> it was so much fun to go to work every day. We just had a blast. Yeah, I tell you, there were, there were too many days that I went to work going, I don't feel like going to work today. This is Barry Gleiner again. It, it was just, it was crazy because you'd go in and it was like, you know, you'd have fun. You'd work and you'd be working on some really high profile work. But at the same time, you know, we had a lot of fun. I hear you. Yeah. No, I mean, as a client, I would go, okay, this is going to be a good day. I'm going to national. <clears throat> You're talking from the inside, you know, as an employee of the place and the way you guys supported each other and all that was sort of invisible. Uh, to the clients. I'm not saying that we didn't notice it, but we all looked at it as if I've got a project, I'm going to bring it to national because there's something about that place. I want to be there. I want to be part of what's going on there. And I remember it feeling like a big college dorm, you know, like promo university or something. And, you know, people are always hanging out in the lobby, people who they might have finished their session two hours ago. They're still hanging out, just talking with people. You know, or people would show up, I think, when they didn't even have work there. People like, you know, clients, and they'd just be like, I just want to be part of this. I just want to breathe yes, this in. Very much so. Um, it, there, were, there were a lot of clients. A lot of my clients would just stop by to visit. It was crazy. And I'd be like, hey, what are you doing? Are you working today? I'd be like, no. Just came by to say hi and grab a cup of coffee and you know, walk around. I'm like, wow. <laughs> I, I may I have been guilty of that once or twice. Such a slam against my talent made me hotter than a mink And I swore that I would ride it for amusement or for kink It was nothing but... I don't know, sitting in those big edit rooms with the, you know, the carpeted walls and the sofa at the back and all the one-inch machines rolling. Talk to me about how you remember those days. To edit with me back in, I would say, uh, 1980 was five to $600 an hour to sit with me in a half a million dollar editing room and later to be a three quarter uh, million dollar editing room because we first started with one inch tapes at the new national of 42nd and 10th. We were two inch and the on uh, 57th and 5th, but we were one inch and then we were beta and then we were digi beta and then we were D2. This is Ron Harris, commonly referred to as the godfather of National Video Center. The special effects boxes was or DVE, ADO, and then Kaleidoscope. And uh, in every editing room, we had a separate uh, digital uh, uh, effects operator, Chiron. And um, I did my own audio, but I always had an assistant editor. And again, five to $600 an hour to work with any editor at National, not just me. According to your LinkedIn bio, you started at National Video Center in 1975. 
So it sounds like you were pretty much right out of school. After I graduated from NYU, I was working at a the first Scanime computer house in the city, post-production house called Dolphin. I was walking from the E train, we lived in Kew Gardens, to my building at Dolphin at 46th and 2nd, and I looked up and the building, the entire side of the building had been blown off. The elevators filled with uh, gas and blew up, and I could see my sweater, my blue sweater hanging out of the building, hanging from a two-inch machine up on the 14th floor, and I knew I was out of work. So you saw you saw basically the building sheared as though it had been yes. sheared in half. Yes, you could see. I could see all the two-inch machines in the dolphins. Wow. Dolphin Productions editing room, and I could see my sweater where I left it hanging the night before out of the building. What year was this again? This was 1974. This is a good time to remind listeners that this Promo Cowboys podcast is brought to you by bourbon, beer, and bar pretzels, and by the novel Promo Cowboy a TV industry crime novel from the author of Life Askew, that is, me, Barry Fitzsimmons. Promo Cowboy is available at Amazon, Kindle, and your finer bookstores. Okay, now that's out of the way. Let's get back to the godfather of National Video Center, Ron Harris. Uh, National Video Center took over the West Side Airlines Terminal, and we moved in in 1981. Uh, I think it was the spring of, yes, like March, April, 1981. And roughly how many employees are there at that point? Well, when, when we left Fifth Avenue, including audio and video, there might have been 17, maybe 20 employees. Okay. Everything was built by Hal Lustig and, and family. And uh, as far as venues go, we had a uh, 5,000 square foot shooting studio and we were the first place to do the MTV VJs in the 5,000 square foot studio. The camera would just pan to another set and it was another show, another VJ going on. So wait, the, the MT, when MTV launched, are you saying that the studio was at National Video Center? Yes. For seven and a half years. So all the raps, all the VJ raps were done at National. Yes, done at National. Okay, that's okay. that's a mystery solved, although I probably knew that once. Uh, all the music videos we did, uh, I personally edited Beavis and Butthead, uh, but there were other younger editors like Glenn Lazaro, who was really an MTV staple. I was the technical director in the studio and the editor for the New York football giants pregame show back when Ray Perkins was a coach and then Bill Parcells came in but we would also do ESPN Uh, I was doing Tribune broadcasting editing Joan Rivers and her daughter Melissa were shooting every day at National and I was doing Joan Rivers and Geraldo Rivera spots for Tribune Broadcasting. We were doing media satellite tours. Mary Tyler Moore was coming in. When ABC went on strike, I edited 
for almost a year. All my children, one life to live, Ryan's hope. On a $10 horse and a $40 saddle, I'm going to punch them Texas cattle. Come a kaya, yippee yay, yippee yay, come a So when I graduated from SUNY Oswego in the spring of 84, uh, they had a great program there. I, I was a communications and broadcasting major, and the professors there were really good at connecting current students with alumni who had worked in the business. Barry Gleiner again. One other person who went to Oswego was working at National. Actually, there were two guys, but one who was an editor, and that was uh, Larry Rubenstein, who you might remember. And um, I had met Larry... Uh, in 1983, he actually came to the school, to the college, uh, and he said, hey, you know, when you get close to graduation, give me a call if you're looking for, you know, to get into production or post-production, whatever you like. That uh, June, I decided to call Larry. I waited a little bit, but then I called Larry, and um, he said, yeah, he goes, let me uh, let me see if I can, you know, set you up with an interview. And I'm thinking, wow, he's going to set me up an interview. When I'm going to go in and become an, edit, an editor right off the bat or a camera guy or something. You know, awesome. I was very excited. About a week later, I go in. He meets me at the door, um, walks me up to uh, the chief engineer. His name was Herb Oland, a big, uh, imposing guy and super, super smart. And that's who I had my interview with. And we're talking and he asked me what I had done at college, and he goes, you know, that's all college stuff. This is the real world. Come, people come here. They pay a lot of money to work here. It's a big responsibility. So um, he goes, I'd like to offer you a job in our mailroom. <laughs> <laughs> but in the back of my mind, I remember one of my professors said to me, you take the first job that's offered to you in a place that may give you an opportunity to advance in what you want to do. And it, that really stuck in my head. He, and the guy said, no matter what the job is, if it's getting coffee, if it's sorting mail, or if it's sweeping the floors, he goes, you will be around the professionals that you need to impress, and that's how you're going to move up. Good advice. I thought for a second, and I said to Herb, I said, I'll take the job. I said, what's the pay? And he said, well, what's minimum wage these days? And I said, it's $3 an hour. He goes, that's your pay. Oh, man. <laughs> I had a small mom and pop shop, and it was opened in conjunction with a filmmaker, a guy by the name of Ben Goldstein, called Filmus, which stood for the combination of film and music. Filmus. This is Peter Fish, who, along with his then wife Jennifer Fish, partnered with National Video Center to form National Sound. Clients were spending X, which wasn't a big X, for music tracks. And yet they would spend $300 an hour for someone to put a mic in front of a guy doing a voiceover. You know, the rates have gone down since then, but at that point in time, the rates were pretty high. And I thought, well, shit, I have a mic. <laughs> I have a video. I have a booth. Why don't I put up a mic and charge $300 an hour? And that was my entry into post audio. So that went on for from about 83 to about 90. And at that time, National Video Center was a major player in the video post-production, even though it had started as an audio production company in the 50s. It was National Recording Studios in 1956. Uh, but then they morphed into National Video Center, and they purported to still have an audio division. 
but there really wasn't much going on there. It was, um, it was a lot of real estate, but pretty dormant. And I would get a lot of projects to do audio post or music or both from National Video Center. But one day I got a call and they invited me to come over and talk to them. And I did. And they said, look, you know, we try to get all this audio work that rightfully should be running through our company if we had the wherewithal because the video work is here. And a great preponderance of it goes over to your company, your little mom and pop. Who, who, who the hell are you guys, number one? <laughs> and number two, uh, how do you take our work? And number three, would you consider joining forces? Now you're talking. You know what that was like? That was like you're in first grade or kindergarten and the sixth graders ask you to sit at their table for lunch. This is, we're talking about 1989, so I was 26 years old in 1989. Uh, it was a big damn deal. And the, the sticking point to me, and the reason I didn't think it was gonna happen, but in fact it ended up happening as you know, was that I looked at their real estate and I looked at the, the uh, antiquated state of their gear. And at that point in time, it wasn't the era we're in now where gear cost you know, less than lunch. Yeah. Gear was expensive. Yeah, yeah. And I said, well, look, I'm happy to do this. And you've got like these four or five rooms ready to go. But and I can fill those rooms because in our little mom and pop, we had built it up to four rooms and we were filling it up regularly. And I said to them, I said, look, I'm happy to do this, but you've got to put some money into this place. And they said, well, how much money do you need to bring it up speed? And I said, $3 million. And they said, okay. Oh, damn, now we got to do this. So we went in and we spent $3 million and we turned it into something and we came over and that was the uh, beginning of National Sound. Working in the mailroom really did suck. I have to say that. How long were you in the mailroom before you moved up? I, you know, at six months was my breaking point. And then I went to the guy who was my boss, this guy Lenny. I said, Lenny, I've had it. I can't do this anymore. This is insane. And he goes, give me two more weeks. <clears throat> I think there's an open an opening in our duplication department upstairs. I think you're, you're the next in line. And he was right, two weeks. And I got that job, and I got a 25-cent raise. <laughs> I think I, went, I had gotten a 25-cent raise in the mailroom. So I think I got into duplication at $3.50 an hour. And I w my hours were 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. Oh, goodness. Ouch. Yeah. But you know what? In my mind, it was awesome. I was getting ready to start working on all this broadcast equipment and working, you know, under professionals and – I really didn't even care about the hours. I just wanted to get really get going on, uh, you know, working working in the business beyond the mailroom. So once I got into duplication, the nice thing about National was they were very very good about letting people from the duplication department uh, actually work on the editing equipment and self train. Yeah, you had to pick people's brains. So you went after other editors or assistant editors. And you said, how do I do this? How do I do that? I see you doing this. How did you do that? And I used to do that on my own time after my overnight shift. Or actually, I would come in before my overnight shift, uh, find an empty edit room, uh, mess around for three hours, and then work my overnight shift. It was like a way to get high for me was just like, what button don't I know? And how can I use that button to get the next coolest thing, next coolest look up on the screen? T-minus 15 
14, 13. Discover more from the Promo Cowboys archive. Listen to all of season one at iTunes, including my discussion with renowned TV designer Nancy Palladino, an MTV original. It was two weeks before the August 1st launch. Ladies and gentlemen, rock and roll. Back then, I didn't know what MTV was. No one knew what it was. A friend of mine said, I'm working at a place and they're looking for a graphics person. Why don't you come up and have lunch? And I said, oh, it's Midtown, corporate. Oh, I don't know. Oh, just come and have lunch. Went up there. Everybody was young and energized. What year was this? 1981. Speaking of MTV, here's Barry Gleiner again. So when I got there, MTV was, you know, they weren't the big thing yet. But certainly there was a a sense of uh, there was going to be something big there. You know, this is 84, summer of 84. By certainly by the summer of 85, they were occupying half of the facility that National Video was, from studios, uh, production studios, to audio studios, to video editing suites. A lot of young producers, right out of college, had no idea what goes on in these edit rooms, and would turn to the editors and go, hey, can you make me some good TV? Um, But let me tell you, that, that mid to late 80s was tremendous. They did the first maybe dozen unplugged episodes at the National, mm-hmm. and then they were doing that uh, when MTV got into that dance club thing. I, I can't remember the name of the show, but it was kind of like the, uh, the the dirty version of Dick Clark. <laughs> it was my first job out of college. I was the, I answered the phones at Fred Allen, end of '83, beginning of '84, and I worked there for a few years. This is Tina Potter again. But I stopped and worked in the music business for a couple of years because I just had this opportunity to work for some of my favorite bands. And so I jumped at it and I got out of television for a couple of years. Who were the bands, Tina? Uh, Talking Heads, Eurythmics, Ramones, B-52s, Big Audio Dynamite. Uh, They were all managed by the same guy, this guy, um, Gary Kerfurst, who was kind of legendary. And so the opportunity to work for him was really totally amazing. So that, you know, I planned David Byrne's wedding and I, you know, went with Annie Lennox and Dave Stewart to get new leather stage clothes. But my boss was a nut and, you know, I worked 24 seven and I really, you know, at a certain point he wanted me to find a methadone clinic for his brother. And I was (laughs) like, okay, I don't think I should be doing this for a living. This is not a good career move for me. And I called up Alan Goodman from the fax room crying and he said, quit today, come back, we'll find something for you, you got to come back. So I did, I went back to Fred Allen and, and worked there for another couple of years. Oh, I've been down the lane to see Miss Betsy Jane, she's a young thing and wants to leave a mammy. When I went to AMC, well, it was Rainbow at the time, uh, I took this job to run the on-air video uh, promotion for, for AMC and Bravo, and then ultimately launched IFC, We, and Fuse. Uh, so I oversaw the creative for five networks and worked at National. I mean, trying to circle back to National. Worked at National the whole time. You know, it was, I think it was late 86. I was working as an assistant editor, and the editor on the job I was going to do called in sick. 
the scheduling office came over to me and said, listen, this is your chance to jump in and, and do some editing. And that was for uh, a show that was on USA Network called Night Flight. It was a late night pop culture uh, show that ran for like three hours every Saturday night. I think I've seen it. You know, for the time, it was actually quite the uh, competitor to MTV. Uh, and I had a chance to edit the show together, uh, which included all kinds of raps, host raps, and a lot of uh, effect editing where we used the um, effects box to fly pictures around the screen. And it looked, this was like a little above my head, but I said, look, I got to take the chance and, and go for it. Good for you. And, yeah. uh, you know, and these guys knew me because I was an assistant editor working on a lot of their projects. So they were like, yeah, fine, whatever. I and mean, they were all like, Dope that in our heads anyway in these sessions. <laughs> these, ses these sessions went on at night. They were night sessions. So we started around 6, 7 o'clock at night and went to like 3, 4 in the morning pretty regularly. That was like their their schedule. And, you know, come midnight, these guys were, I, I mean, I can't even tell you. Oh, I am a jolly Irishman from Ireland. I came. Do you want to know more about me? Pat Murphy is my name. The reason why... In 1989, I really had a great break into working on a show for Nickelodeon. It was called Eureka's Castle. And it was kind of their Muppet, Sesame Street-esque type show. Uh, no humans in it, though. It was all puppet-based uh, uh, action. Right. Uh, they were actually shooting the show uh, in our studios on the first floor, and then we would edit them upstairs on the third floor. Uh, won a couple of awards. I worked on that for three years, from 89 to, like, 90. But oddly enough... From that, I actually started getting requested on doing hip-hop and rap videos. I think it was a producer whose kid liked the show, uh, Eureka's Castle. And he liked the style of the cutting on that show. And he said, who is the guy who cuts the show? I'd like to try to work with him. His name is Paris Barkley, I believe. And he brought to me groups like Salt and Pepper, uh, Kid and Play, Ice-T, uh, Queen Latifah, I did like five videos for her. It was crazy. I mean, these guys who became really big early 90s icons in hip-hop and rap, uh, I was doing like really their you know, first music videos. Yeah, those sessions were crazy. I mean, most of the artists would show up to them, and it was out of control. I had to put my blinders on so I could keep cutting without being distracted by the, the partying going on in the edit room. <laughs> It was uh, a lot of fun, but I, you know, you, you have to draw the line because you got to get the work done, right? I, I mean, got to get the work done. I mean, they're paying good money for that. That's great. So you know, I tried not to inhale. <laughs> right on, mighty rider, you got your reins in your hand. Well, right on, mighty rider, you got your That run led to a twelve-year run for me working um, with PBS. Boy, did I go from one extreme to the other there. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, on, the, on the show Nature. Yeah, was, yeah, I mean, PBS was an amazing client, probably my best client I've ever had. Being able to work on some other PBS series like American Masters and Frontline and, and Nova. ESPN I had a big run with. We launched uh, CNBC and MSNBC at National. That's when you and I started working together. I, I believe so. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, network promo stuff. I did a lot of NBC stuff. Right. Network news, promos, and mm -hmm. CBS. Fa I mean, thousands of different projects. Mm -hmm. 
Now, we've heard how National Video Center was a haven for MTV and VH1 and the cool cable nets that were exploding during the Reagan era. But prepare yourselves for a truth bomb of politics from the far right. National was not too cool to follow the money. But who knew the party bosses would follow National? When National moved to 42nd and 10th, Roger Ailes, the Republican guru, moved Ailes Communications into Manhattan Plaza across the street. Ron Harris again. Every edit that he did for the next 25 years was done at National Video and pretty much done with me. Uh, I did Bush in 88, Quayle for Senate and vice president with Marilyn Quayle sitting in my editing room. She had a crush on my playback at the time, Jack Roebuck. Listen, I did uh, Reagan for president, Giuliani for mayor, Senator Malcolm Walla from Wyoming, Senator Jack Schmidt from New Mexico, Lou Lehrman for governor of New York, uh, uh, Tom Kane from New Jersey, Al D'Amato New York. You should have been our guy for CNBC back in the day because... We had we had Jerry Stoll, who was you know a, a really good editor. Yes, but you were politically more uh, aligned with Roger, whereas many of us were like, well, we do this because it pays. Everyone's money was green. We worked with Roger Ailes. We didn't care. This is Peter Fish again. Apologies for the sound quality. Yeah, I remember once. Um, uh, I'm well known as a as a left leaning pinko Democrat in Brooklyn of all places. In Brooklyn of all places, and it was late at night, and I got a call from a junior assistant who was even more left-leaning than me. And our client was Ailes. And he goes, listen, said, George Pataki, Governor Pataki, is, is sleeping on the couch in Studio Two. And I go, yeah. He goes, I could kill him. I said, what? Say the word, boss, I'll kill him. Oh my gosh. That's not our kind of revolution, son. But he meant it. Now, for this multi-part episode on National Video Center, I wanted to end part one on a low note. This is where Richard Nixon comes in. He had the biggest head I ever saw, and I said, that's Dan Aykroyd. (laughs) That's really Dan Aykroyd with a mask on. But it was Richard Nixon. That's fine. And I was technical director and the editor for Nixon's memoirs. We shot them four consecutive days. But it was my job to edit these Republican candidates. I never vote for them. And when we were killing Dukakis, I put Dukakis in a tank with a helmet on his head. He looked like a turtle. Oh, so you're the guy who cut that ad. I did cut that commercial. Well, Ron Harris, as I once said to the editors of a super exploitive piece at a current affair, I hope you're happy with what you've done here. However, in light of the surprise results on November 8th, Let's not call this a low note after all. Instead, let's just move on. Here's a taste of part two of my National Video Center tribute. I wanted to launch my own company. I loved Lee Hunt, but I was giving him so much money (laughs) 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 that I thought, wait, I could be doing this. And so I launched Teapot out of a little office at National and um, they were great business partners. You know, it was a great experience. That was Tina Potter, and this is Barry Fitzsimmons. Thanking you for listening. As always, this edition of the Promo Cowboys podcast is brought to you by bourbon, beer, and bar pretzels, and by the novel Promo Cowboy, a TV industry thriller by yours truly, Barry Fitzsimmons. Available in hard copy at Amazon.com and your finer bookstores. 
and find the ebook at the Amazon Kindle store. I'd like to thank my guests today, Ron Harris, Barry Gleiner, Peter Fish, and Tina Potter. More from them in the next edition, plus others may join. Hope you'll check it out. Also, thanks to Brian Setzer and the Stray Cats for letting me use their song, Rock This Town. And thanks to freesound.org, who provide the instrumental music for this Promo Cowboys podcast. And the Pond 5 Public Domain Project for the archival ditties that keep all this serious TV promo talk on the fun side. As always, I'm interested in your feedback, but I admit I suck at social media. That said, there's a new Promo Cowboys Facebook page that I hope you'll check out and like. Reach me on the Twitter at Promo Cowboy, also on Facebook and LinkedIn at Barry Fitzsimmons. Promo Cowboys is a Steve production. Steve is a division of Igloo Media, LLC. This podcast was edited and produced by Barry Fitzsimmons. Thanks again for joining me. As Promo Cowboy says, Shoot, after all that, guess I could use a shower. Take us out. <laughs>